Morning, Victory City family. So grateful for you to be jumping in back with us this week. Just so grateful to be able to share with you in the Word of God again this week. Um, the Lord has been so faithful and so kind to us. And we're just reminded, and I think in our our trek now through Acts, of just the faithfulness of God. And I hope that we can see just how clearly God is working in the text throughout the life of the apostles to, to, to make sure that the ministry is continued, even though there are all types of hindrances that are coming up in the text. I hope that we know that we can also apply that to our lives as well, knowing that though we at the present state don't see the full course of action, how our life will play out, just how efficient God is and sufficient God is to make all things in the life of the believer well. So our encouragement should be as we're reading through this and we see what looks to be like a roller coaster ride, like ups and downs in the life of the apostles, really God setting the course for his ministry and the gospel to go forth, knowing that he was in control the whole time. Now, this week we're continuing in Acts chapter 13, and this is going to be a particularly inter interesting text just because of what Paul says in this sermon. And I'm just overjoyed to be able to share with you, but I think it's going to have a particular importance as well in our lives and how we defend what we now know to be the gospel. Now, you've noticed that the title of today's sermon is Prove It. And those are two very important words, but they're also very important for us as believers to grasp. Now, these two words have probably been uttered in no greater place other than classrooms and playgrounds all over the world where you have some lofty child who is telling the other students that somehow they have a talent or an ability that they've never displayed to the other students who says that they're able to do something the other students have never seen. And typically the response to those, to those students by the other students is, okay, we'll prove it. I think there is also a general outcry that is happening, right, that is coming towards many of us who are Christians. When we are declaring that we are Christians, there are people all over the place who are asking us, well, if you're a Christian, you should prove it. I want you to prove it. I want you to prove that the faith that you have, that what you believe in is actually legitimate. Now, I do find it interesting that in those cases, the typical response for many of us as Christians is to be angry, is to be upset. The fact that people would dare ask us to prove and legitimize our faith. But what's interesting is that we are actually instructed in Scripture, right, that we should actually have an answer every time somebody asks us our reason for confessing and professing the faith. So it is actually important that if someone is asking us why we believe what we believe, for us to legitimize it, for us to prove it, that we actually know enough about our faith to equivocate why we believe what we believe. Now, I do find it also interesting that when any of us is prone to be asked a question about our favorite sports team in whatever league we choose, we will be quick to rifle off a number of stats to justify why we think that our team, our player, is the best. But when asked to legitimize our faith, we become remarkably silent. 
I think the big thing that challenges us as believers is that many of us don't actually know why we believe what we believe. We just believe based off of blind belief. Blind belief is that we've been told we're Christians from the time we were born and our faith is not really our own, but it's the faith of our grandparents. It's the faith of our parents. But what we need to be able to do as believers is not just understand the faith, but we actually have to believe the faith and believe it enough to communicate to people why we believe what we believe. And also know that it's not an assault on Christianity if someone asks you to prove it. That should be the biggest opportunity one has in order to share why they believe what they believe. What we believe about God so many times, because it's just a testimony of our parents, falls short when we're trying to explain to people the reason for our faith. And because of that, we are not seeing people drawn into the faith because we're not giving them a convincing enough testimony of the truth of the gospel. In this sermon, though, by Paul, he is going to lean heavily on the writing of David in the second psalm as he is foreshadowing many of the events that would take place up to and including the resurrection of Jesus. He is speaking here to a primarily Jewish and Gentile audience. And what Paul is going to masterfully do today in this sermon is he is going to present a series of proofs and justifications for why he believes what he believes. Jump with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, prior to Paul's preaching here, Luke mentions what seems to be just an anecdotal note. He says that when they left to go to Pamphylia, he mentions that John Mark, that's John, did not go on with them in the missionary journey. Now, this is going to be very significant for us later. So I want you to make just a little bookmark in your brain about the fact that John Mark does not continue on to Pamphylia and actually returns home to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas, as they would, though, whenever they reached the city, they would go to the synagogue. And when they got to the synagogue, they would go in. Now, on the Sabbath day service here, as Luke describes it, there is a reading of the Old Testament. There is a reading of the law and the prophets. And then at the end, there is prayer and blessing. But it is common that if there are guests, specifically if there are guests, the ilk of Paul, that you're going to invite that guest to share in some words of encouragement that they may have. Now, continuing on, it says in verse 16, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. 
As Paul gets up, he does what any expert speaker at that time would have done. He motions with his hand. Not only does it demonstrate that he is an expert speaker, but it also commands the control of the crowd. It denotes that he was one who had good speaking ability. And so as he addresses, he addresses two groups of people. He says that we have the men of Israel. Those are the Jews. And he says, and those of you who fear God. Now, if you don't remember who they are, these are the non-Jewish God fearers who had basically devoted themselves, proselytized themselves so that they consider themselves Jewish in the Jewish faith because they had such respect and reverence for the God of Israel. And so he addresses them and he addresses the men of Israel and he says, you who fear God. And then for those of them who belong to Israel, he begins outlining their history. So for the Jews present, this would have been a joyous recollection of all of the things that God had done for them, specifically because of their faith in God and their favor with God. And so as he's recollecting the history, they would have smiled and felt um, such a, a benevolent feeling towards God because they know that God has favored them because they're such a great people, right? Let me explain why the um, recalling of their history is important and what we should actually learn from it. The recalling of God's history of faithfulness is the testimony that we have of God's track record for our lives. You know, as churches have modernized and we've gone so forward, one of the things that we've actually lost in services is testimony service. And those for people who remember what that was, was often such a joyous occasion because we so often miss what is actually happening in the lives of other believers. And so they would get up and they would share about the testimony of what God has done in their lives and a legitimate testimony, one that is all about God and not about the individual brings us such a joy and it reaffirms our faith in God, seeing how God is moving and operating so cleverly in the lives of other people. Look where Paul begins. I think this is actually pretty significant. Now, in other occasions, when, when people gave prominent sermons, we've seen Stephen's sermon. We've also seen the sermons of Peter. They typically begin with one man, the father of their faith, and that's Abraham. But I do think it's interesting here that Paul doesn't start with Abraham. Now, Anything that Paul does as a preacher is not by mistake. He's doing it on purpose. And we need to figure out why he doesn't start with Abraham. Because clearly it's not by mistake. So the reason he starts not with Abraham, but where he starts is because of this. A real testimony has the real evidence of God's faithfulness. And it begins with God's glory not our own. Paul says that while our fathers were in their captivity, a captivity that all bore down to Israel rightfully deserving that captivity because of their own rebellion, but it also demonstrates to us that God had chosen them not because of their goodness, not because of their faithfulness. It was he who led them out of the captivity that they themselves had gotten in. 
So what he's showing here is if I start with Abraham, then it does begin with a place of glory and, and, and great feelings of ourselves. But if I start with captivity, it is a reminder that we were exiles. We were in a place that we shouldn't have been. Now, the connection here, if you don't see it, to the gospel is that we all, though we were not physical exiles, every single one of us who needed to be saved were spiritual exiles who needed to be rejoined, who, who needed to be reunited with God in the faith. And so I think he's beginning here because for the people who were God-fearers who did not have this history, they could absolutely count on this being true for their lives as well because we were all spiritual exiles who needed to be drawn back in a right relationship with God and the reason we were all exiled was because of our own rebellion he is connecting the salvation here the perseverance of the Jews to the greater salvation of the Gentiles as well at this point the Jews think Paul is merely only recounting their history, but what he is actually doing is setting forth the framework for the invitation to salvation, which would go to the Gentiles. See, this history is irrelevant to any non-Jew unless there is a bridge, there is a connector, there is a mediator to their God as well. And that's exactly where Paul is going. Because if I'm outside, we're all Gentiles here. If I'm outside of the, of the Jewish faith, then I am not connected to this history unless God has sent us a bridge that will connect us all back to him. Look at what he says in verse 23. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my, my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Again, so beautifully, Paul points out the rebellion of Israel when he says that they'd actually requested a king instead of God being their king. They asked for a king in God's place, and it was God who removed that king because of that king's rebellion and placed David to be their king. He then says that from the offspring of David that he gave us all a savior. And Paul says he gave us this savior as he promised. When was God making this promise of the Messiah, of the savior? I can tell you when. He's making that promise to us in Genesis. He says you will bruise his heel and he will crush his head. That is a reference to Jesus. He's bringing us that promise in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac. For the Lord will provide for us a lamb. When Moses says that there was going to be a prophet raised after him who would also lead his people out of exile 
of their sin out of their own destitute state of wandering. He says that John the Baptist was a foreshadowing of the Savior. And John brought you a message of repentance to the Jews. And it was that message that they rejected. Paul is saying, listen, if you look back at the track record, right, if you look at the history, you can clearly see that God had promised us a savior who would redeem us. And it is laced in the Old Testament. It is Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. It is clearly laid out and the whole course of history has been surrounded, centered on this one event that Jesus Christ would die on the cross to be the perpetuation, the sacrifice, the atonement for our sins. And he says that very message, God's people, the Jews, rejected. And so he says in verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. We see our Jew or Gentile, we see our equal sinfulness here. But what we also see is the superior righteousness of Christ. We have all, no matter what your race, no matter what your creed, we have all equally fallen short of the infinite glory and righteousness of God. In Acts, in verse 27, he says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. What is Paul saying here? He says, one, to you Jews, the people who are joyfully receiving this message, they did not recognize Jesus. They did not understand the prophets, and this led to them assassinating their own. This led to them murdering the, the man who was supposed to be the one who would be the Messiah, the Savior, who took away the sins of the world because of their unwillingness, because of the hardness of their hearts. They set aside the man who had come to take away their sins. In verse 29, he says, and when they had carried out all that was written of him. They took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers. And that, my people, is the gospel. That is what we are proclaiming to you. Paul keeps here referring back to the Old Testament because for him, the Old Testament is the evidence that what has happened is all preordained by God. 
This is not the patchwork of men trying to just hold a lie together. And that is why he is constantly referring to the second psalm. Because the second psalm is telling you all of these things that are going to happen. What does it say in the psalm? You are my son. I have begotten you. Jesus prophesied people. And Paul refers to it again. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. This is not about David. This is about Jesus. Jesus is the only man who never saw corruption. Verses 38, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This one is always a slap in the face of the Jews because he says for those of you who may think that your righteousness is counted to you by the law of Moses by merely upholding the law of Moses he has brought to you a freedom that could not be brought to you otherwise and that is that the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been placed on your account though you are sinful though you are wicked and he has made you free Jew and Gentile this is beautiful people are now freed because of their faith in Jesus Paul's thesis here is that the reason you should believe is that all you have seen and all that was told long before it ever even happened including their own scoffing, including their murder of Jesus, including their rebelling against the truth. As a result of Paul teaching this, once they hear this, the Bible says that they were begging to hear his teaching. Listen, this is going to be my thesis here. When we are so committed to the truth of God, when we know this thing, when it's not just a head knowledge, but when this head knowledge has become a heart knowledge. And when we share this truth, when we can prove, when we can justify, when we can validate the reason we believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. The reason why we have committed our lives to him as it happens here when Paul started preaching the people started coming they wanted to hear this teaching because they could tell that he believed it I never forget there's a story many of you may not know who David Hume is but David Hume is a well-known 15th century atheist who wrote many works many good works a secular uh, writer and well-known atheist at that time and one point George Whitfield was preaching and he was preaching a revival to the people and the man who recognized David Hume sees David Hume standing in the crowd while George Whitfield is preaching and the man says, I didn't think you were a believer. I didn't know you believed. He says, well, I don't, but he does. That should be the response that everybody has whenever they question why we believe what we believe. Even if they can't believe, they should know that we believe with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, with all of our strength, that what has been written before us is, in fact, the truth. 
Do you know enough about your faith when questioned about it to prove it? If there was ever a case outlined to determine whether or not you were a Christian, could you present enough evidence in your life, evidence in what you know about the Bible to be convicted of your Christianity? That is what is happening, people. Now, for many people that heard this, this was a message of freedom and salvation for the Jews and for the Gentiles. There were Jewish leaders, however, who didn't like this message as much. Paul then says that the gospel was brought first to them because God knew that when the Jews initially received this gospel, they would thrust that gospel aside. And their setting aside of the gospel was actually what brought salvation to the Gentiles. And that was also prophesied. This is beautiful. Look at what he says in verse 47. For so the Lord commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And then look at what Romans 11 and 11 says. So I ask, did they, the Jews... Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? That is beautiful. Paul says, if the rejection of the Jews for the gospel means that we, the Gentiles, are included, guess how much more will happen? I think he is speaking a little bit prophetically here. When their full inclusion will happen. It's going to be a beautiful day. The intricacy of the will and sovereignty of God is so infinite, so far beyond our comprehension. And that the whole course of history, God has been orchestrating, surrounding around his truth, about what is true. Not relative truth, absolute truth. We have been invited, we who were outside of the family of faith have been invited, grafted, and adopted into the family of God. And when the Gentiles hear this message for the first time, they leap for joy, ecstatic that the door to salvation had finally been opened to them. Listen, there are people who don't know that the door of salvation has been opened to them. And the testimony of the truth of the gospel may have to come from your lips. You must be faithful and diligent to share the truth but know enough about who God is, know enough about what the Bible says in order to effectively communicate that truth in a way that when a person wants to know, why do you believe that you can give them the most convincing argument that you can give them? That is what is hinging on that. Somebody's salvation may be relying on your ability to communicate the gospel. So I'm going to ask you this as we close. Can you prove it? If somebody asks you why you believe this gospel thing, why you read this Bible thing, can you prove it? I'll never forget 
my the first day I was supposed to go to college, the transmission in my car went out, and so I was sitting inside of a gas station. And I opened my Bible. I never forget the gas station I was in was a trucker stop, and a man came in. I was reading the Bible, and as he walked by, he said, "His book is full of lies." Now, if I had known enough about it, what I was reading, if I had been bold enough in my faith, I could have stood up to that man and withstood him and said, "No, you're the one that's full of lies. This is the source of truth. Who knows?" But I thank God, I pray to God, that man's salvation wasn't hinging on my ability to communicate the gospel. But what it did show me is that we're going to always be in positions where people are going to refute, they're going to counteract, they're going to do anything they can to invalidate what we believe. And we must know enough to withstand it and prove that what we believe is all source of truth. Let's pray.